You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, church, as you're taking your seat, please open your Bible together with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to consider today Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to verse 11. I'm really thankful to have Cliff Klein with here leading worship for us today. He's on staff at Hope Bible Church in Oakville, one of our sister churches in the Great Commission Collective, our church planning network. Very thankful he's here with us today. There's a truth about our walk with Christ that's easy to neglect. While the work is done, the task is not yet complete. In 2003, former President George W. Bush delivered a speech that left a controversial legacy. It was less than two years after the 9-11 attacks in New York in 2003, and the U.S. and England had renewed their efforts in the war on terror in Iraq. President Bush delivered a rousing televised speech from an aircraft carrier that left some of the watching public confused. In his speech, he said statements like, we have uh, continued work to do, difficult work to do in Iraq, and our mission still continues in Iraq. While at the same time, a large banner hung behind him that said, mission accomplished. The government said that the banner was supposed to be just for the sailors who were on that aircraft. They, those sailors, actually accomplished their individual mission. Because at that time of the uh, speech, they, the sailors concluded a 10-month scheduled deployment at sea. But the watching world didn't know that. And they thought it meant that the war was over, when in reality it continued on for another eight years. Years later, after his presidency ended, President Bush admitted that having that banner conveyed the wrong message and that it was even wrong to have it at all. Sometimes, Christians get the wrong message about our battle and fight in the war on sin. We know that in Christ the work is done. We know that Jesus died for our sins once for all 20 centuries ago on that cross. But we neglect the truth that while the work is done, our task is not yet complete. Killing sin is the constant task of our life in Christ. Killing sin is the constant task of our life in Christ. And every day, we need to be answering the call of our commander-in-chief to bear arms and go to war. Today, we're going to learn what it means to kill sin, and we're going to learn three motivations that will encourage us to keep killing sin. So as we do, let's begin our time in God's word by standing together to honor the Lord as we read the scripture together. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to verse 11. This is God's word It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in need of your Holy Spirit. I recall Romans chapter 8, verse 13 that says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. Lord God, today as we learn what it means to kill sin, cause us to be able to do it and put sin to death by the Spirit. We can't rid ourselves of these wicked behaviors that you hate. But by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, we can choke the life out of them so that the true life of Christ might be manifested and lived through us. Oh, Lord God, this is what I would desire for my life and our church today, that we would kill sin so that Christ might live through us. Help us, Lord God, to be able to hate what you hate and love what you love Thank you, Father, for the truth of Scripture and the power of your Spirit. Together with the good news of the gospel, would you enable us to live holy lives in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Killing sin is the constant task of our life in Christ. So we want to understand what it means to kill sin and three motivations to keep killing sin. So first, what does it mean? Let's get a clear definition. What does it mean to kill Sin. Look at the text again with me. I hope you have your Bible continually open because we're going to keep looking back at it. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's what the text says. This definition I have for you is derived from a perished uh, theologian named John Owen. Here's a definition derived from John Owen. Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. Is it still breathing? Suffocate it. Is it still eating? Starve it. Is his heart still pumping? Remove it. Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. Well, notice in the text it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. So I'm telling us we need to kill, kill sin, but the text tells us we need to put to death what's earthly. Why does it use the word earthly? Because the Apostle Paul, who wrote this text, is trying to draw a contrast of earthly living that we should not follow to setting our minds on the things that are above, the heavenly things from chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, Christian, if you have life in Christ, you've died to your sin and you've believed in Jesus, you're commanded to now seek the things that are above. Though you live in this world, we're supposed to orient our lives around Christ's heavenly authority while we live in this world. The earthly things are the things of this world that don't recognize Christ's authority in heaven. It's the sinful lifestyles that are in rebellion against God's authority and his decrees commanded in scripture. Those are the earthly things, but notice also what it says in verse five, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. See, the earthly things aren't just the earthly things 
in the earth, in the world, the earthly things are in us. Yes, the world tempts us. Yes, demons and the devil tempt us. But sin is produced from our own wicked hearts. That's what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, Jesus said, from, For from within, out of the heart of men comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, I'm running out of fingers, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, Jesus says, all these come from within and they defile a person. Every human is born in a state, in a state, in a position that is rebellious against God. So what kind of sin must we put to death there? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. There's two lists of sins in this passages. And this isn't a comprehensive list, but it's a categorical list. The first list is, I would say, sins of lustful desire. Craving what the body and the eyes want. Look at it in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, wanting possessions that you don't have, which is idolatry. Unhinged lustful desire that seeks satisfaction through sex and through materialistic living is opposed to Christ's heavenly authority. And the more you think you're feeding the desires of the body, the more your soul will actually still be starving. That's the first list, lustful desire. Well, there's a second list in verse 8 and 9. Look at it with me there, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Not only do we need to put to death lustful desire, we need to put to death abusive behavior. Anger, that's the hate in your heart. Wrath, that's the anger that's expressed out at people. Malice, that's the wicked thoughts about wanting to do evil. And obscene talk, that's foul language you wouldn't talk, say, in front of your mom. Abusive behavior. Uncontrolled abusive behavior towards each other fails God's greatest commandment, which is to love God and love others. And we do that, we fail the greatest commandment when we forget that we're all created in the image of God equally and that I'm no better than you. And when we sin against other people in the church, we're not just sinning against another human being, we're sinning against the body of Christ. We're sinning against Christ himself. What are you most prone to? When you feel guilt and shame for what you know you've done is wrong in God's eyes, is it because you mostly bend towards lustful desire? Or is it because you have just this uncontrolled heart that lashes out all the time? Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. Earlier this year, my wife and I had a pet, in pet pest infestation in our house. I didn't want to admit that it was an infestation at first. And I saw these little like insects crawling around everywhere. And whenever I saw it, I would just go like, step. But then there'd be another one. 
step, and then another, and my wife would be like, we should probably do something about this. She's like, nah, it's okay. And the more the days passed by, the more I was just like, just tap dancing everywhere. And I realized, okay, I think we have an infestation when I picked up my daughter in the morning and there was one on her chest. Okay, we got to do something about this. <laughs> so they were pretty small insects. You could fit three easily on the size of my baby fingernail. So we took a picture of it because it, it looked like a tick. It's not a tick. So we looked online and looked for similar pictures and saw that it's called a rice weevil. Rice weevils are tiny little insects that feed on grain, rice, flour. So then we figured this out and they were like, oh, it's not, they're not coming from under the sink. They're not coming through the vent. Look in the pantry. And we opened up the pantry and opened up our bag of rice and saw dozens upon dozens upon dozens of these little things feeding on it. So my wife was like, all the grain is gone now. <laughs> and I was like, all the grain? But they're just in this bag of rice. I don't care. They feed on any grain. Do we have to throw out the brown rice? The brown rice. The jasmine rice? The jasmine rice. The pancake mix? The pancake mix. Throw it out. But we like to have pancakes every Saturday morning. So, okay, so we'll buy more. But now we're not going to leave it in the Ziploc bag. We're going to put it in airtight containers. So we took away what it was feeding on. And then I could tap dance and kill them. And then once we put it and kept the bugs from getting to the source, they left. They couldn't come back. Killing sin is constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. Well, how? How can we do that in our lives? How do we actually kill sin? How do we remove the source that enables it to keep living? Well, just like these insects, you need, you need to take out from your life the desire in your heart that gives life to sin, and then you need to build walls around your heart so that you don't go to those places or, to, or around those people where sin will be aggravated and temptation will be stirred up within you. The way that we kill sin is, is through these two things. One, we need, we need a growing faith in the gospel. We need a growing faith in the gospel that remembers I've died with Christ. He, I'm forgiven of my sin. He's freed me from this. This isn't my life anymore. A growing faith in the gospel. A growing faith in the gospel that happens, grows as I abide with Christ in his word will allow me to have discernment. Discernment to recognize what are the desires in my heart that motivate me to go for sin. The sexual addict isn't just longing, isn't just a fool. They're actually longing for satisfaction and they don't know where to get it from. The lazy person, you might see laziness in their action, but actually the desire in their heart is a longing for security and maybe even a fear of failure. The angry person or the lying person isn't just mean for the sake of mean. They're afraid that they don't have control, so they need to manipulate control. It's not enough just to confess that the action is wrong, but you need to recognize the desire of your heart. And then recognize how in Christ Jesus, not only are you forgiven of your sin, but Jesus satisfies 
and keeps secure the longings of your heart that sin can never actually meet anyway. You might think that you can get satisfaction from sex or laziness or food, but our satisfaction is in Christ alone. Psalm 1611 says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And you might be, have abusive behaviors towards others because you think you lack control, but, but, but we love because Christ first loved us. And I don't have control, but I trust that God is in control. We need a growing faith in the gospel that can only be developed through regular abiding with Christ. And not only do we need to remove the source of life, but we need to put up walls like I had to put in airtight containers the food. And how do you do that? Wisdom in the fear of God. Wisdom in the fear of God supported through a loving Christian community that can help show you how your habits are aggravating your sin. Why do I keep going to those websites? Why do I keep hanging out with these people that I know are influencing me the wrong way? Why do you keep overeating? Why do you keep overspending? There are desires in our hearts, but there are habits that aggravate it. And with wisdom and the fear of God, you can have the self-control to say no. No, I'm going to put up a website filter so that I don't even have opportunity to go to that website. No, I'm not going to take that commute home because I know I'm going to see that massage parlor on the side of the street. And I'm going to go a different route. Or I'm going to carpool. No, I'm not going to have this phone plan that allows me unlimited data to any website anywhere because I know that's not going to be good. No, I'm not going to hang out with these people at this place because I know they're going to want me to rag on other people and make fun of other people. And I know that's wrong. It's like, well, this might be, that's kind of inconvenient, isn't it? Change your commute. Change your online habits. Jesus didn't say, if your right eye causes you to sin, put an eye patch over it. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He didn't say, if your right hand causes you to sin, tie it behind your back. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's worth it to lose one member of your body than to lose your whole soul for eternity in hell. Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. What should you be putting death to do today that you've made a peace treaty with? Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. That's what it means to kill sin. Now let's understand the motivations. Why? Because you know the reality is we love our sin. There's so many things that I've uh, in years past been addicted to and enslaved to that I thought made me happy that were pleasantly enjoyable for a moment but would cause me so much shame. The motivation to turn away from the sin that you love is to embrace a greater love and a greater joy through the greatest love that's been shown to us through the good news of Jesus Christ. So there's three motivations, but they're all aspects of the good news of Christ, the gospel. So here's the first one, the first motivation to keep killing sin. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm saved from wrath. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm saved from wrath. Look at the text with me. I hope you have your Bible open, whether it's digital or whether it's physical. Verse 6, 
on account of these, the earthly things, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath isn't something that is frequently taught on in churches today. But the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation describes that wrath is an attribute of our good and loving and holy God. I want to tell you six aspects of God's wrath from Scripture. And if you're a note taker, you might not be able to write this down all at once, but don't worry, we're going to send these notes out in our small group questions today. Six aspects of God's wrath. First, Deuteronomy 9, verse 7 to 8 says that the wrath of God is the expression of his intense anger towards sin. That's what God's wrath is. The expression of his intense anger towards sin. Exodus 34, 6 and 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Exodus 34, 6 and 2 Peter 3, verse 9 say that God is actually slow to anger and wishes all to reach repentance. Third aspect, Romans 2, verse 5 to 8. Romans 2, verse 5 to 8 says that there is an appointed day, an appointed day that God's wrath will be revealed upon humanity. Fourth aspect, John 3.36. In John 3.36, Jesus says that the wrath of God rests on those who do not receive him by faith. The wrath of God rests on those who do not receive Jesus by faith. Fifth aspect, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says that the experience of suffering the wrath of God is eternal destruction away from his presence and his glorious might. That's what experiencing the wrath of God is. Eternal destruction away from the presence of God and his glorious might. But here's hope. Sixth aspect. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says that those who believe in Jesus are not destined for wrath. Those who believe in Jesus are not destined for wrath, but to obtain the inheritance of eternal salvation. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm saved from wrath. So, yes, I'm forgiven. Praise the Lord, I'm forgiven. Praise the Lord, I'm redeemed and rescued. So then, why do you keep floating down this river knowing what's at its end? Have you ever been on a lazy river before? You know, there's these lazy rivers that like water park resorts. I think they might have one at Canada's Wonderland. It's just this, um, this man-made canal with a motorized uh, uh, engine that kind of pushes the current along slowly. And it's usually just like a circle. And you, all you do is you sit in a tube and let the water push you and you can chill under the sun. You can have a drink. Would you, get, would you get on the lazy river if you knew there was a waterfall at the end of it with sharp rocks at the bottom of it? I think so many of our people in our generation live their lives just like cruising down the lazy river and they expect that life is just going to come to them. I expect to get my driver's license. I expect to graduate from high school. I expect to get into the university of my choice. I, I expect that I'll get my degree. I expect that I'll get a good paying job, that I'll meet someone that I can love for my whole life, that I'll uh, be able to buy a car, that I'll be able to travel around the world, that I'll be able to get married and have two and a half kids and a more 
mortgage, that I'll be able to get a cottage in the summer, and that I'll be able to save up for retirement, and then I'll be able to check into um, a retirement home and then just go into death, good and old and gray. Yet Jesus says that the day of wrath is coming like a thief in the night. That waterfall could be right around the corner. I, I heard on the news yesterday that someone my age, 30 years old, was on Lake Ontario on a sea and made one bad turn and passed into eternity. God could require your life of you today. If you stood before him, if you stood before God's judgment, would you be found as one who has believed in Christ or would you be found as one guilty in your sin who is judged under his wrath? And listen, you can float down the river and it might say Christian on your tube, but as long as you're going down that river, wrath is at the end of it. If you've believed on Christ, have you repented of your sin? Does the confession of your mouth match the character of your life? If you confess Jesus as Lord, why are you living like you're your own master? If you believe that Jesus is your savior, why are you living like you're not saved? If you have a confession of your faith, but you aren't living a life of repentance, you're not saved and you're under God's wrath. And you might bear the title Christian, but you will one day hear the words of Jesus say, away from me, I never knew you. Friend, you can know for certain that you have the hope of eternal life because Jesus died in your place for your sins. Believe on him today. And true faith will produce a change of life. That's what repentance is. Turning around because we're grieved for the way that we used to live. If you've not grieved your sin, you cannot leave your sin. Believe on Christ today and you will be saved from wrath. And that will not be your destiny. You will have the hope of eternal salvation. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow path that leads to life few there are who find it. Are you one who's on it? Or are you still on the wide road? Turn back and believe in Jesus, friend. And then you will have the hope of eternal life. And then you'll recognize, why was I living in that way? I'm dead to those things now. And if they crop up again, I'm killing it. The work is done, but our task is incomplete. Killing sin is the constant attack of our life in Christ, and we need to answer the call today. Three motivations. Not only do we know that we're saved from sin, but also saved from wrath, but I can keep killing sin because I know I'm living a new life. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm living a new life. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 says, In these, the earthly things which deserve the wrath of God, in these you two once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Why will we put them away? Because we once walked in them. When we were living in them, past tense, meaning not my life now. There's, there's always a path that follows the life that you want to live. And when 
all people are apart from Christ, their life is marked by sin, their spiritual life is marked by sin, just like their DNA marks their physical life. But if you believed in Jesus, you've died to that old life. That's not who you are. You, Colossians 3 verse 3 says that you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You've died to that old life, and that means that the walk, the lifestyle that naturally followed it is also dead. I'm not walking in that path anymore. Colossians 6, 2 verse 6 to 7 says that I should walk in Christ. Since we have a new life and a new walk, our old lifestyle should be set aside like a piece, of, like an outfit or a wardrobe that no longer represents who we are. That lifestyle does not represent who you are in Christ. If you used to work for Starbucks, but you got a new job in an office, you're not going to show up to your new job wearing that green apron anymore. If you were an MVP player for the Toronto Raptors, but signed a contract in L.A., you're not going to show up to training camp with a red and black jersey because it doesn't represent the team that you're on. Christian, the things that are normal in the way of life are n uh, for our world are not, should not be normal in our way of life. The things that represent the way of the world do not represent who we are in Christ. The old self has been stripped away like a dirty uniform that does not uh, fit your workplace anymore, like an old jersey that doesn't represent your team anymore. You've been drafted into Christ's team. Put on his jersey. Put off those old habits. Put off those old desires. It does not represent who you are. You are Christ's. You belong to him. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm living a new life. Not only that, but I can keep killing sin because I know I'm part of a new humanity. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm part of a new humanity. Look at the text with me, verse 9 and verse 11. It says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Not only does that old way of living not, present, not represent who you are individually, it doesn't represent who we are as a community. It doesn't represent who we are as a community. It doesn't represent who God wants us to be in Christ. Look at the text again, verse 9. Notice the words self, old self, new self. Not, a, not the best translation from the original language into English. Because the word self makes it sound like it's very individualistic. But it's not. That's not what it's talking about here. Self is literally translated from the original language, man. But not man signifying male, Man signifying humanity. When we believed in Jesus Christ, our corrupt human nature that was cursed by sin was stripped away. And now the old self has been 
put off. And in Christ, we have been put, we have a new self that has been put on, a new humanity that we have clothed, been clothed in. We've been made new in Christ, and we are being renewed in knowledge so that our lives better reflect the perfect human, Jesus Christ. There's a new way that in a community, human beings should relate to one another, and it's the way that Christ related to this world. And the way that we are renewed into the image of a creator is through knowledge. The more we submit our minds to the teaching of the word of God, we will understand the mind of God, the will of God, so that we can obey it. And just as Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father's will, so we can learn to live like Christ, and our community can represent the perfect human Jesus. What does that look like? What does that look like when a church actually lives out its true humanity? Verse 11 tells us, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. I learned something unique this past week that I didn't know when I was studying the scripture. That word barbarian, when I've heard it before, maybe through like, I don't know, comics or TV shows or popular culture, when I've heard the word barbarian, I've thought of the word like savage, right? But that's not necessarily what it means. Barbarian was the term that Greek-speaking people in the ancient world used for non-Greek-speaking people in their culture. Because the Greeks thought very highly of their culture, philosophy, politics, democracy, and Greek was the common language of the day. But there are other people who didn't speak Greek in their culture, and they were less intelligent, less educated, and they spoke this like weird language that made no sense. And when they heard it, it just sounded like bar, 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 bar. So they called those lesser educated people barbarians. The idea is that whatever might divide us according to our demographic differences doesn't divide or define us in Christ. What you think defines us because of your demographics, what you think might divide us because of our demographics does not in Christ. Jew and Greek culture does not divide divide us or define us. Circumcised and uncircumcised, our former religious background doesn't define us or divide us. Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, economic status doesn't define us or divide us. What does define us? What actually unites us? Christ. Christ is all. That means the true distinguishing mark of a community that is living out its new humanity is that the thing that supremely matters is that we are living like Christ. Christ is all. It doesn't matter what your paycheck is. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what your parents' family business is. It doesn't matter if you went to college or a high school dropout or have a PhD. None of that matters. What matters is that we're all In Christ, that's what's celebrated, and that's what unites us. Christ is in all. He permeates all, and because he permeates all, he is what unites us and holds us together. That doesn't mean that the church becomes a melting pot. 
what it means is that the church becomes a beautiful mosaic. The melting pot puts all of our distinctions in a crucible and turns up the heat so that it can boil out any feature that is different. That's not equality. That's not unity. The mosaic recognizes that we are different pieces, different sizes, different shapes, but different colors. But the gospel fits us all together so that while you see individual pieces, each peach piece reveals the larger picture of a beautiful work of art. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I can keep killing sin because I know I have a new life. I can keep killing sin because I know I'm a part of a new humanity. That means that the old way of living doesn't represent who I am anymore. And it doesn't represent who God wants us to be anymore. Because we have new life, we are a new people. And what might be normal in the world cannot be normal for the Christian. What might be a point of pride in the world will not be a point of pride for the Christian. It might be normal to talk down about other workers in your, at your job. It might be normal at school to talk about girls like they're objects for your own gratification. It might be normal for your friend group to watch movies and shows with just a little bit of nudity in it. It might be normal for you and your friends to flirt with that girl at the gym. It might be normal for you and your friends to want to buy those clothes that you wouldn't ever really wear in front of your mother. Your resume might be a point of pride. Your paycheck might be a point of pride. Your family heritage might be a point of pride. Your degree might be a point of pride. Your job might be a point of pride. But none of those things matter in the church. What's normal in the world is abnormal in Christ. What's a point of pride in the world? We count as loss in the church compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So give the uniform back, burn the jersey, and let your part of the mosaic shine the whole beauty of Jesus Christ and put to death anything that would come in that way. Killing sin means constantly removing any source that enables it to keep living. It's the constant task of the Christian life. Are you answering the call of your commander-in-chief or have you made peace with your sin? We're not just fighting a battle that's outside of us, but we're fighting a battle that's inside of us. Christian, this means that we need to live like you're in a battle every day because you are. We need to live like we're in a battle every day. The soldier who's out on the field knows that sleep is less valuable as a, of a commodity as readiness because he needs to be ready because an enemy could come around him at any corner. And if he's not ready, his enemy will be and his life will be forfeit. John Owen, that theologian who wrote the book Mortification of Sin, famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So how do you feel like your life in crisis right now? Do you feel like your joy is being choked out? Do you feel like your hope is bleeding through? 
it's probably because you're not fighting against sin. Live like you're a battle every day. We can't afford to be comfortable with it. We need to be combating against it. This is my task. This is your task. Killing sin is the constant task of our life in Christ. So, church, let's take up arms and let's go to war. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your mercy and your grace towards us. The only reason we can enter into this battle is because you've drafted us on into your army. Thank you, Lord God, that you are our master. You are our savior. You are our king. You are our shepherd. You are our friend. Lord God, I've seen so many times in my life where Peace has escaped me. Joy has eluded me. Hope has been just empty. But God, I thank you that it's a grace. It's a grace to be convicted of my sin so that it can be grieved and repented of and killed so that your life can live through me. And then when I live in your life, Lord God, I praise you that the Holy Spirit produces within me the fullness of life that I really want, joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and fruitfulness and self-control. Lord, keep us from double-mindedness that thinks that we can enjoy these things yet still live comfortably with our sin. Help us to have a single-minded devotion to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Thank you, Lord, that you died, that your son died so that we could have life. Let us live faithful, crucified lives, picking up our cross every day, putting sin to death by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.